you have your Bible, I want to invite you to meet me in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Yes, you heard that correct. Revelation 19, verse 11. I love what Pastor Kyle and I, as we were thinking about the Advent season, what, what the Lord just impressed upon us was uh, one of the things that we decided to do this Advent season is not only to specifically talk about the first coming of Jesus, when we think about Jesus coming and the incarnation, being born of a virgin and being born in the manger, but we also wanted to think about Jesus' second coming, what we call the second Advent, which hasn't happened but will happen at some point in the future. And I think this is really important. This is really important because sometimes what happens in our Christmas liturgy, and I'll explain what liturgy is here in a moment, but sometimes in our Christmas liturgy, we, we focus so much on the baby Jesus, as we should, that sometimes, though, what I think happens in our hearts and in our minds is we forget that the baby Jesus was sent on a mission. And that mission was not just to be born in a manger, but that mission was to go to a cross. And the reason that he went to the cross is he went to the cross for us, for you and for me. And so sometimes I think what happens is we we lose, if you may maybe use the illustration this way, we lose the forest amidst looking only at the tree. And one of the things that Pastor Kyle and I wanted to really help you see this morning as, as we look at the second coming is that not only did Jesus come, not only did Jesus live the life that you and I were supposed to live but couldn't because of our sin, Not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sin, not only did Jesus rise again and ascend into heaven and is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, but we want you to see that Jesus will return. He's coming back, baby. That wasn't in my notes. See what happens when you go off notes? He's coming back. Now, one of the things that happens is in our in our liturgy, right? So liturgy, James K. Smith, a Christian philosopher, he wrote this about liturgy. Liturgy are those practices that shape and constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. The idea that James K. Smith is saying is that sometimes in our Christmas liturgy, what we do is we focus so much on the baby Jesus that we forget that Jesus is going to be a conquering and returning king. In fact, that is the title of my sermon this morning. Jesus is our conquering and returning king. We're going to look at this in Revelation chapter 19. Perhaps by way of a story and an illustration to kind of help you see where we're headed today, uh, I would like to just let you in to our family life a little bit. One of the great things about being a dad of young children is coming home. Now, as dads, I want you to all, all of us to remember that although we may have had a long day of work, coming home is the harder work, right? Because when you come home, from a long day on the job, the real work, in my mind, begins. Because now we got to walk in and be the daddy that God has called us to be. That we have to make disciples of these young people that God has allowed and given us as gifts into our home. Because the way that we parent our children has eternal consequences attached to it. And so therefore, that's when the real work begins. But I love walking through the door with my young kids. When I walk through the door, not my young kids, I'm sorry, Katie, our young kids. I'll hear about that later. But what I love doing is when I walk through that front door, our little Levi, he will run and yell, Daddy's home! Daddy's home! And he runs with that big body and short legs and he holds those big arms up and says, Give me a hug, Daddy! 
And I'll be bend down, I pick him up, and I squeeze, and, and he squeezes my neck with a, a genuine and authentic hug. And when we're done, I say, I love you, son, and I put him down, and he runs through the whole house. And he goes, Avery, Wandon, Adwin, Winkin, Daddy's home. Come here, come see, come see. It's almost as if in his little mind, he thinks to himself, how dare you not drop everything that you are doing and immediately run to the door and embrace our father. Now, I say that tongue in cheek because I don't demand that our children run up to and greet me at the door with that type of greeting every Sunday or every day. But what I do think is that sometimes what we do is that we get so complacent in the Christian life that I think we live our lives not thinking that Jesus is coming back. We live our lives knowing that Jesus came. We live our lives knowing that the gospel is good news. But sometimes as Christians, I don't think we live our lives knowing that one day daddy's home. And so how do we change the mentality of our church culture? And how do we live in light of this good news? John Piper, one of my heroes, he talked about the two advents in this way. He said at Jesus' first coming, it was the appearance of grace. A grace much needed. But at his second coming is going to be the appearance of glory. And so today what I want to do is I want to give you a glimpse of Jesus' glory through the lens of that grace. And show you what our conquering king is going to be doing when he returns. Now, I want to show you something here that I think is very important. Revelation is not an easy book. It is not an easy letter written by the, uh, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He was exiled for his faith. And he sits down and he, he is, God meets him. On the island and he says, pin these words. Jesus says, pin these words at all that you see. And he gives it to us. But sometimes, if you've read through Revelations, it can be kind of tough. Revelations has a futuristic attachment to it. The genre is known as apocalyptic. And it can be a bit difficult to wrap our minds around. But here's my belief. If God provided revelation for us in the word, then it must be important for us today. In other words, I think revelation contributes to our understanding and our actions as Christians. Dr. Benjamin Merkel, he talks about the main theme of revelation, which in his, one of his classes at Southeastern, and I wanted to share with you uh, his theme that he brought out of revelation to help us to understand and see where God may be leading us this morning. Benjamin Merkel said this, Dr. Merkel, he says, revelation is about the victory of the Lamb of God over the enemies of God. So that the people of God can enjoy the presence of God. Revelations is about enjoying God's presence now. And hoping in what's going to happen as we experience God's presence in the end. So if you have your Bible, and I pray and hope you do, you will need it today in my sermon. Let us read together Revelation 19, 11 through 21 out loud. I'm going to read it out loud and may we be blessed by the words recorded in this book. John wrote under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather For the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot to unwrap there, right? So here's what I want to do today in my sermon. The way that my sermon is going to break down is I'm going to exegete this passage for you. I'm going to explain it. And then from there, I'm going to give you and I three applications for what we do with it. Because again, I think Revelations is not for simply for the future, although it talks about the future. It's for us, God's people, even in the present. So the first thing we need to ask of the text is we need to say, who is this writer who comes in on the white horse? Well, very clearly, number one, Jesus is the conquering king. And Jesus is the rider on the white horse. You say, well, how do you get there, Jeremy? Well, first off, the, at the end of verse 10, we see for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And from then, it says, and I saw heaven and open, behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true. So we can make the connection that out of verse 10, talking about the testimony of Jesus, we move in to see that testimony Through these words from the Apostle John. But I think the most clear example that this is talking about Jesus is found in verse 13. In verse 13, John says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is what? The Word of God. And notice that the Word is capitalized there, meaning it is a proper name for all you English teachers in the room. So who is this Word? Well, John, if you are unaware, and it's okay if you are, John actually wrote some other letters and a gospel in the New Testament. John wrote the gospel of John. This John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And one of the most clearest evidence that John has in mind Jesus here, besides the name, is what he says in his gospel. In gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. That Word is capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. And that word there is is talking about Jesus. You say, well, Jeremy, how do you know that the word is talking about Jesus? Well, in John chapter 1, verse 14, just 11 verses later, 13 later, 13 verses later, excuse my math. I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. He says in there, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, that is very clearly talking about Jesus. 
What we celebrated in the Advent season. The word becoming flesh. And so this is very clear that that Jesus is the one who comes in with all of these characteristics. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who is true. He is the one who comes in with a, a crown on his head with many diadems. He's the one who comes in riding the horse with the word of God, with a sharp sword in his mouth to rule and to uh, be called king of kings and lord of lords. So the very first thing that you and I understand is that this text is talking about King Jesus. But secondly, what we see here is that Jesus is returning as our conquering king. And we specifically see that in what he rides in on. He rides in on a what? A white horse. Now, let's think about the appearance of grace and the appearance of glory. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, right before he goes to the cross, what does he ride in upon? A donkey or a colt. Matthew calls it a donkey. The other two gospels calls it a colt. Figure that out on your own. Just kidding. The idea here is that he's coming in in humility. Jesus' first appearance into Jerusalem, not first appearance into Jerusalem, but his appearance into Jerusalem, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's coming in in humility. He's coming in with a purpose in mind. And his purpose is his mission. He is coming in to humble himself. Paul would say in Philippians that he comes to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus's appearance of grace. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes to die for our sin, not his sin. He had none. He comes to die for our sin. And so God takes all of his sin and he places it on the son so that through Jesus, you and I could have life. Through Jesus, you and I can have faith and forgiveness of sin. And through Jesus, we can be now in the presence of God forever. In other words, the relationship that was severed has now been brought back together through the one who rode in on that donkey. But how does he come the next time? Well, the next time he's not coming with a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. Now, what this means is the white horse is a symbol of Victory and power of a king. Do you remember Shrek 2? I love Shrek 2. It's one of my favorites. But, But one of my favorite characters in Shrek is Donkey. Eddie Murphy's voice. I mean, he is funny. But Donkey is not much to look at, right? Uh, donkey's a, a donkey, and, and he, you know, he's got a weird crooked smile and all these different things, and he's really funny. But then in Shrek 2, when they put the spell on Donkey, what does he turn into? A white horse. And I love this picture. I love the picture when he goes to Shrek, and when he gets all this big white horse, when he gets transformed into this white horse, he goes to Shrek, and he goes, hey, Shrek, look at me. I'm a steed. I think he's meaning to say, I'm a stud. Like, look how good I look now. The reality here is this is what Jesus is riding in on next. When Jesus returns, he's not coming in grace. He's coming in glory. He's riding in on a white horse as the victorious conquering king that he is. And he is going to return for a second time. And he is going to cause uh, he's going to bring judgment. He is going to make war. He is going to redeem and transform the entire earth. When our king comes back, it is going to be glorious. Think of the glory that comes with him. Faithful, true, judges, makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. 
and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. There's a name that he has that we can't even hear just yet. He's robed and he's the word of God. He comes with an army following behind him and he's going to rule the nations. He's going to cast the rebellion against him. He's going to win the battle and he is going to declare for once and for all, it is finished. Think about just one of those descriptors for a moment. What does it mean that Jesus' eyes are like flames of fire? Dr. Agin, in his commentary, he made the comment, he said that the eyes that are like flames of fire reminds us that he has piercing and penetrating judgment on us. In other words, when Jesus returns, and I think even now I would argue that Jesus knows everything about you. I would even argue that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Because his eyes can see right through you. Think about that for a moment. That means Jesus knows everything that you have ever done. He knows everything you have ever said. He knows everything you have ever thought. He knows that sin that you keep covered. He knows that sin you keep committing in private. He knows how you treat your spouse. He knows how you treat your children. He knows what you do in your spare time. He knows what you think. And he knows what you say. Now, for some of us, that might terrify us. But for the Christian, let me assure you, that doesn't fear, it doesn't make me fear at all. Because there's the third thing I want you to see in this text. When Jesus comes back as our conquering king, he's coming to not only claim victory over his enemy, but he's bringing us with him. See, there's two types of people in this room. And the first type of person is the believer. And so some of you are sitting here like, oh, Jesus knows everything that I've ever done. That kind of frights me a little bit, but it shouldn't frighten us. Look at who comes with him in verse 14 when he returns. It says the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. So who are these armies there? Well, this armies in the original language is in the plural. So I believe that this armies is going to be both a mixture of angelic beings, but also those who are part of the redeemed. Which is us. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, who have repented of sin, you are a part of this army that he's bringing back with him. You say, well, how do you get to that, Jeremy? Well, very clearly here, I think the text lends itself to it. Notice what they look like. They are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Prior to Jesus riding in on the right horse, we are introduced to the marriage supper of the Lamb at the beginning of Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, all who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are the redeemed, are the bride of Christ. And look at how they are described in verse 8 of chapter 19. He said, it was granted her to clothe herself with what? Fine linen. Well, there's that same word. Bright, which I think also corresponds with white. And pure, which is the same word found in verse 14. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the who? Saints. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes back, with his fiery flaming eyes. He's coming back with his people. And they're right behind him. So for us as believers. Yes. Jesus might know everything that we've ever done. But the good news as a believer. Is that I am not judged by what I have done. Because I will be judged by what Jesus has done for me. And so the reason that I am pure. The reason that I am white. The reason that I am robed in fine linen. 
is because the blood of the Lamb who appeared with grace came and cleansed me of all my sin and unrighteousness. So when God looks at me now, He doesn't judge me from my sin. All He sees is the blood of the Savior covering me. And He goes, you're clean. Come with me. Come into the presence of your Father. But I think for some of you in this room, I don't want you to walk out of here unwarned. For some of you in your room, you say, well, that's not my faith. I have not repented of my sin or trusted in Jesus. And I want you to see that our conquering king comes And when he returns, it is over. Notice in verses 17 through 21 what happens. Jesus comes back to conquer his enemies. He comes back to win the battle that has been fought against him. It says he comes in in verse 19. He says, I saw the beast. I saw the kings of the earth, all those in rebellion against him with armies gathered around him to make war against him who was sitting on this horse and against his army. But I love what I love what John does in verse 20. If you notice here, there's no descriptor of the battle. It doesn't say, well, this is how the battle's going to play out. And I think there's importance to that because I don't think there is going to be a battle. It's going to be like this. Jesus is going to walk in and he's going to be like, this battle is over before it began. Kind of like whenever I, uh, um, I arm wrestle our little boys. When I get in there with the arm wrestle, you know, I know. I might play with them a little bit. But in the end, who's winning this war? Hands down, Daddy. We teach you how to be good losers in the bell house. No participation trophy here. <laughs> uh, the point, though, is that notice we don't get the descriptor of the battle in verse 20. All we get is the result. The beast was captured. The false prophet as well. And they were thrown alive into the lake of fire. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, Jesus, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. In other words, when Jesus returns, it's over. It's done. Finished. And the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, which side of the battle line are you on when it happens? Are you behind the one who is faithful and true? Are you on the rebellious other side? Because the sad reality is, brothers and sisters, is that for those who have not repented of of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, eternal damnation is their reward. And that should break our hearts. In the end of Revelation 20, notice what we see here in verse 14. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. So yes, Jesus comes and he's going to overcome. But in verse 15 it says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, for all those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus, that is their fate. And as Christians, that should break our hearts. And the reason it should break our hearts is because we have the gift. Because we have the message. Because we know Jesus. And we want to get Jesus to as many people as possible before that day comes. Now on a lighter note. Because I think some of us should be wrestling in our hearts right now. If the spirit is poking and prodding. But on a lighter note. Let me just explain one more thing when Jesus returns. For those of us who are believers. When Jesus returns. He's making everything new. Revelation 21. John says, I saw heaven, a new heaven. I saw a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Somebody give me an amen right there. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When Jesus comes back, brothers and sisters, he's making everything new. We will live again. We will live with him in his presence. We will walk with him like Adam and Eve walked with him. We will not wrestle with sin in ourselves or being sinned against. We don't even know what that even thinks like because we just have so much sin in us, right? And he says, I'm coming back and I'm going to make everything brand new. And I think that's why John says at the end of this, he's thinking about daddy coming home and he says, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Yes, that's our future. Man, I tell you what, those people that think to themselves like our future is a bunch of, you know, we're going to have wings and sit in diapers and play harps. You are missing the boat, baby. That's not what I read in the scriptures. We're coming back to life again. The final resurrection and we're going to be with God and it is going to be good. So let me ask a question. Now that we're excited about Jesus' return, how does this apply to your life? Three things. Three applications from this text that you take home with you today. And I put them on the board just so you can remember them and write them down. Number one, we long for and anticipate the return of our King. Going back to my illustration of Levi, I think many of us are like my other children. We just got complacent. We just got complacent, not even thinking that Jesus is coming back. Like, honestly, ask yourself the question, how would you live differently if you thought Jesus was coming back in an hour? I always like to, I played this kind of war game in my mind, like how would Levi act differently if he knew that daddy was coming home? But he didn't know when daddy was coming home. Maybe, maybe, perhaps, Levi would try never to sin against his mommy. He would never tell her no, because the last thing he wants is for daddy to come home and hear him disobeying mommy. Or maybe he would get the house ready, waiting for my return, clean it up, make it look good. Maybe what he would do is he would grab all of his siblings and he would grab all of his friends and he said, come stand by the door. I don't know when my daddy's coming home, but when he does, you're going to want to see it. You see, I think the way that we live our life changes if we think that Jesus is coming back. It changes because we actually live differently thinking about Jesus' return. Two groups of people that I want you to think for, think about in, as we long for Jesus' return. Well, number one, if you're a believer in here, or excuse me, if you're not a believer in here, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, then I want you to understand we don't know when he's coming back. But the reality is, when he does, have you put your faith in him? Because when he does, it's too late. Don't put off tomorrow your faith. Receive it today. Don't put off asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and repenting of sins and trusting in his work, in his life, his death and his resurrection. It reminds me of Jesus when he talked about the the parable of the of the ten virgins. In the parable of the ten virgins, you have these ten virgins who come out to meet their bridegroom and they have lamps with them. And only five of them bring some extra oil 
they're prepared for this bridegroom's return. Because they don't know when the bridegroom is going to return, but they want to be ready for when he does. But then there was the other five. They didn't bring any extra oil. And so as the, as the day lingered on and as the, the flames began to get low and the oil began to get low, the other five said, hey, can you give us some of yours? And they're like, no, we don't know when he's going to return. We're going to need all of this. Quickly, run to the store. Go buy some more oil. And when they run off to the store, guess who shows up? The bridegroom. And he takes the five that were ready for him. But the other five run back and they realize that the bridegroom has showed up and they weren't there. And they say, hey, let us in. And the bridegroom says, truly, I say to you, I didn't know you. The point of that story in the parable is to do this. Don't delay putting off your salvation today. Don't delay because you don't know when Jesus is going to return and when those battle lines are going to be drawn. And my prayer this morning for every single one of you is that you come out of this building today knowing that your faith is secure, your salvation is secure in Jesus, the one who rides in on this white horse, and that when He returns, you will be with me, arrayed in fine linen, white and purple, following Him on our white horses. Don't delay putting your faith in Jesus. But secondly, I think this also applies to us as believers. Because the reality is, how would we live differently How would we live differently if we thought Jesus was coming back in an hour? Would you repent of that sin that you're holding on to? Would you ask forgiveness of that person that you have sinned against? Would you grant forgiveness to that person who has sinned against you? Would you go out and tell as many people as you could that my Jesus is coming back? Get ready for him. The reality is, I think that if we thought Jesus was coming back sooner rather than later, our lives would look a lot different. And what I would say is this, I would say that we would become more obedient, waiting for that return. I was once told, and I thought it was the greatest saying that I ever heard, that delayed obedience is still disobedience. So maybe we wouldn't delay putting off obedience and holiness, thinking that Jesus might return at any moment. In other words, are we filling and being prepared with those lamps Waiting for our bridegroom. So when he returns, he says, come with me. Come into my presence. Be with me forever. Well done, good and faithful servant. At the end of this sermon, I'm going to give you, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. So that you can walk out of here knowing which side of the battle line you would be on when Jesus returns. Number two. Number two. We reach as many people as possible before he arrives. In other words, we know he's coming back. And the reality is, as Christians, Jesus has given us our marching orders. He has given us as the church what we are to be doing for him. It is called the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. That is our commission as disciples. We are commissioned to take the gospel to the nations before he returns. And I think in my mind that if we know that Jesus is coming back at any moment, how much more will we share our faith? We were in a class recently and we had a a really good conversation. And one of the conversations that I had as we were talking about, I was talking about it with my mentor this week. And I said, you know, one of the things that we want to pride ourselves on at at Center Church, besides the gospel, obviously, the gospel above all is I said, we want to hold charity towards each other. 
And one of the things I said, I said, listen, that means that I don't care if you're a premillennialist, postmillennialist, all millennialist, or what you millennialists, because you don't even know what those words mean. I think we can all agree on one thing, no matter when and how it happens, we can all agree on this. Jesus is coming back, yes? He's coming back, right? And we are going to get as many people to him as possible before he does. Doesn't matter how or when he's doing it, the reality is it doesn't that doesn't play a factor into our great commission as Christians. We're called to go get them. Even if it costs us our lives. To kind of paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, let me say it this way. Let no lost person that crosses our path not go to be with Jesus, not go to heaven, not know that they will be standing behind the one who has uh, saved them from their sin and washed their sins and made them as white and pure as snow. Let them not know. Let them not go to hell. If they must go to hell, let them not go to hell without us pleading for them, praying for them, begging them to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Because I don't know when he's coming back. I know that I'm going to take as many people as I can with me until he does. That is our marching orders, Christians. That is what we are called to do. So ask yourself this week, who is God putting in your life to share this good news with? Because what happens if he comes back tomorrow? In my mind, I know it's not theologically probably probable, but I always think to myself, I never want to get to the end and have somebody walk up to me and be like, how come you didn't tell me? We were friends. You coached my kids' basketball team. I went to school with your kids. I went to school with you. I worked with you. I sat next to you in our cubicle. Or in Kyle's and I's case, across looking each other in the eyes. So our desks face each other. But may nobody come up to me and say, why did you never tell me until it was too late? When Jesus returns, we must understand that application two, we reach as many people as possible before he arrives. And number three, number three, remember that our returning king will declare victory over his enemies. Our returning king will declare victory over his enemies. One of the, listen, brothers and sisters, I understand. I don't want to be prophetic here, but I think I will be. We live in a hostile culture. I get it. For some of you who have lived longer than I have, the culture is getting darker. I get it. I will argue in response to that thought that in cultures that are the darkest, that is the gospel shines the brightest. But I get we're living in a difficult world and maybe one day persecution is coming our way as Americans. So be it. Because one of the things I think we have done a disservice to as the American church is instead of allowing the one who is sitting on the white horse, instead of allowing the one who is faithful and true and righteousness, who judges and makes war, what we have done as American Christians is we have waged the war of culture with ourselves. We'd be like, you know what? Jesus, you're too slow. We're going to do it ourselves. I think about those people. I went to a conference a couple of years ago, two, last year. I went to a conference and like, you know those people that were standing out there with signs, they just kept yelling at me. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Repent of your sins. I'm like, I have. Why do you keep yelling at me? Your obedience is in the right place, but your love is not. Because that's not how I see Jesus interacting with lost people. 
the reality is, I think so many times, we as a church, that's our, that, is, that is how we act towards our culture. Well, you're going to hell. Nothing I can do about it because you're just too dark for me. The reality is Jesus says, no, actually, I'm coming to overthrow the enemies. And because I'm coming to overthrow the enemies in my time, the reality is that we need to remember that he declares and has victory over his enemies, not us. So how as Christians should we react to a hostile culture? I'm glad you asked. This is what the Bible says. Are you ready? You're not ready. Here it comes. Let's just look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Because this is our response to our enemies. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. That's who's going to be walking in on the white horse. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Not fight them. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or how about when Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. What? And pray for those who persecute you. What? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Heaven. In other words, I think Jesus is pointing us to don't worry. Oops, go back. You're good. Remember, he says, the returning king will declare victory over his enemies, not you. That's not our job. That's his job. We respond to our enemies with love. Or how about with Paul, I think, picking up again on Romans chapter 12. I think he says the same thing here. Listen to what he says here. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way you get there in response to a darkening culture is that you have to understand this. You see, what the reality is, brothers and sisters, is not that we return good and love towards people who are evil and make us suffer as a means to say, (laughs) I'm going to pray for you so that you get what's coming to you. That is not the response of our hearts. In fact, what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 is this. He says, the way that you and I respond to the suffering from the hands of our enemy should point people to the Savior. Yes, some of us in here, we may have enemies. But we respond to our enemies in a way that points them to Jesus. The one who suffered for you and me. The one who says, let us not forget before we think too high and mighty of ourselves. Let us not forget that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were by nature children of wrath. That we were by nature enemies of God. But while we were still in our trespasses and sins, what did Jesus do for us? By His grace, He saved us by going to a cross. That's the response that we have to our enemies. I have a story that I read in a missions journal 
that I think encapsulates all three of these applications. So you can leave them up there. Thank you. It highlights how we long and anticipate the return of our King. It highlights how we reach as many people as possible before we rise. And it highlights how we remember that Jesus, our returning King, will declare victory over his enemies. There was a man who came out of a village. And he left this village and he went into another part of his culture. And there he met some missionaries. And these missionaries told him about the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he heard that news of what Jesus had done for him and his sin, he repented of sin and he put his faith in Jesus. But he said, this good news is so good, i got to go share it with my village. Because I don't know when this king is going to return, but my village needs to hear it before he does. So he goes to his village and as he gets there to his village, he, uh, he walks into the village and he gathers all of his local villagers and he says, listen guys, listen, I have a message from you. It's called the good news. And as he began to share the good news of Jesus, they began to be enraged. They began to get angry and they began to go and beat him. And they beat him until he was unconscious. And so he dragged, they dragged him in his unconscious state outside the village and left him for dead. When he awoke, he came to him and he's like, well, maybe I didn't say it right. Maybe I didn't say it like the missionaries had said it. So he's like, maybe I'll go back in and try to reiterate what the good news is. So he goes back to the village. And as he goes back to the village, because he wants to reach as many people as possible before King Jesus arrives, he, he goes into the village. And while he's in the village, he brings them all around. and says, okay, maybe y'all didn't understand what I was saying, so let me try this again. Let me share the good news of Jesus with you again. As he began to share the gospel, they began to become once again enraged and angry and beat him and knocked him unconscious. And then they dragged him out the village to leave him for dead. At this point, we could all argue that they might be enemies, Correct? Some of us, we'd be like that old, you know, we'd go to the old go- that, that gospel text. We'd be like, oh, I'm just going to shake the sandals, the sand off my sandals, and I'm walking away from you guys. That was not what he thought. Because he loved his enemies, and he knew that Jesus, in the end, will declare victory over the enemies. And so he got up again, and he's like, well, I've got to try again. So he began to walk to the village, but this time, before he even stepped foot in the village, the villagers ran out and rushed him, and they began to beat him, this time not only with sticks and rocks, but with pieces of barbed wire. Couldn't even utter a word out. But the journal said this, before he passed out again, he began to look into the eyes of his attackers. And in the eyes of his attackers, he saw tears streaming down their faces. That was his last picture before he closed his eyes and went unconscious. When he opened his eyes again, he found himself in one of the villagers' huts, being tended to by the village. And when he finally was able to speak, he says, what, what does all this mean? And they said to him, because you kept returning and sharing this message, we knew it had to be true. And the whole village has now repented of sin and put their faith in this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is our response on the day, waiting and anticipating and longing for Jesus' return. So how do we respond to a message like this this morning? Three ways. Number one, if you're in here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't repented of sin, you don't know the one who is on this white horse, then I want you not to leave here today not knowing this Jesus. 
And so what we're going to do in a few moments is I'm going to have Pastor Kyle come up here to this corner. I'm going to have Mr. Ronnie go back to that corner. And I'm going to have Nathan, some of our leadership, go over to that corner. And I'm going to be up here in the front. And if you say, today, I'm not walking out of here until I know that I am safe and secure in the arms of Jesus, then you come talk to us before you leave. Do not leave here today not knowing that you're on the right side of salvation. But number two, some of you in this room, God is speaking to you right now. That sin that's in your mind that you think nobody knows about, that you've been hiding or you've been trying to keep covered up so you can keep committing it, today the Lord is speaking to your heart and saying, repent of it now before I return. The return of Jesus makes an urgency to our life. So here's what I want you to do. It's kind of a bit old school, I know, but you sit right there in your chair and you ask God to forgive you of it. You ask God to help you to help you not do it again. You ask God by the power of his spirit to make you holy as he is holy. You, you live out in that prayer time right there. You live out what John says. If I can get there. You live out what first John says right now is if God's pressing a sin upon your heart, you say this. If I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess this morning. And if you're here today and you're like, Jeremy, I have some real big confession. I just need you to pray for me. Then you go to one of those four guys too. And you say, I just need you to pray for me. I'm struggling and wrestling with this. And you don't tell us what it is. But just say, I need, I need to repent and I need help to walk the walk that Jesus has called me to. Number two, maybe you need to sit right there and you need to pray right now. God, who is that one person I need to share the gospel with this Christmas season? Who's that one Uncle Eddie Who's that one buddy the elf? Who's that one person that's coming into my home that I need to share the gospel with before, before you come back? And number three, if you're here today and you, you, you're stressed out by your enemies, and if you're being persecuted for your faith, then you sit right there and you say, God, help me. Help me to love my enemies the way that you loved me when I was your enemy. And help me to go through this season of suffering as a means to point people to the Savior. I'm going to give you three minutes. Men, go to your spots. Everybody bow their heads, close their eyes. And you respond right now. Right now. If you need to get up and talk to one of our guys, they're right here. If you even want to just come and get on your knees at your chair, go for it. But you respond right now as the Lord leads.
Father God, I, I pray for pray for all of our hearts this morning. Father, I know that you're working in, in their lives just as much as you worked in my life as I prepared this text for them and for myself, as I fed on the Word. Father, I pray that we would begin to live today not just looking back towards your first coming, but longing for and anticipating the second coming. May that hope change the way that we live for you so that we can do whatever it takes. Use all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasures to advance your kingdom and glorify your great name. Continue to use Center Church as a means to glorify your name to the nations. We ask that you would help us plant churches and send missionaries with the good news of Jesus Christ before you return. And we want to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to as many people as possible. So we ask that you would not only sustain us, provide for us, but Lord, that you would maximize your power in this church with your people to spread the good news of Jesus no matter what it may cost us. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.